Amen. And thank you to our music team for leading us in those songs this morning. We come uh, to a, I think, a really fun, uh, well-known section of Scripture uh, this morning. And I hope it will be of great encouragement to us. Sometimes it's nice just to have those, those passages that, that kind of connect us back to what it's all about, remind us of what's at the very core of our life as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, our source of joy. And we come indeed to one of those texts this morning. And it's timely. It's an interesting time of the year. It's an interesting time in the season of our, of our church, um, of our culture, of our world. It's a lot of things happening, aren't there? Uh, it's, people are graduating and moving on to new seasons of life. Seems like the spring, people are moving, people are getting new jobs, they're trying new stuff, uh, they're getting hit with the do-it-yourself impulse, and then about now is when they start to feel like that would be a good thing to pay somebody else to do. Uh, just a lot going on. Uh, and yet even our coming together this morning is a reminder that there are, there are things that... It, we want to constantly return to places that ground us, uh, that remind us that we, we have something that is shared and that is unchanging and that gives us a, a firm foundation in life no matter what season we happen to be in. And as we look at, especially this morning, the, the topic of abiding, the picture of the vine and the branches, it's a familiar lesson and a familiar story, but I want us to hear it perhaps with a fresh perspective and to prepare our hearts to understand that I would actually invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 80. I think Psalm 80 reflects well what would have been the theological background and even the cultural background of this imagery of the vine and the branches that uh, Jesus is going to take and, and, in, and fill with new meaning in our text this morning. And as is always the case, if you are able, I'd invite you as you take your copy of God's Word to stand to honor the reading of it. We'll be reading from Psalm 80. We'll begin in verse 8. This is a psalm that was written for the choir director. It's set to El Shoshanim, uh, possibly meaning to the lilies. It would have been interesting to know what that sounded like. It's an eduth, uh, a testimony, a declaring of something that is true. A psalm of Asaph, one of those three men specifically assigned by David to fulfill the role of, of hymn writer and musician in the temple that he desired to see built for God. And so in Psalm 80, beginning in verse 8, we read this. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Would you pray with me? 
Father, as we turn to our time in the Word this morning, we ask uh, indeed that you would encourage our hearts to look at the history of Israel and to see this vine so beleaguered and so battered and so seemingly incapable and indeed incapable of bearing the fruit that you called it to and to know that in Christ we have now been grafted into the living vine, that you have indeed caused your face to shine upon us, that we have been saved. We thank you for that, Father. We ask that we would be reminded of your goodness, we would be reminded of the source of our life, that we would be challenged to live that out in a life of fruitfulness today. So shape us with your word. May it do its pruning work in our hearts, and we desire that we would bring you much glory where you deserve it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we jump back into our passage, again, uh, up in that upper room, that last night of Christ's life, Jesus has been teaching his disciples all those critical lessons that will sustain them when he leaves them shortly. He's taught them about the gift of the Holy Spirit, their need to love one another, their need to love him. He's taught them what true obedience looks like. And even as we saw last week, he's taught them of the divine peace that he will leave with them. And back in John chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus contextualized all this by saying, these words I have spoken to you, while abiding with you. He says, this is, this is the ministry I've had to you while I've been with you, remained with you, lived with you. But the time of that kind of abiding was nearing an end as he prepared to leave. But abiding itself is not over. And in fact, in many ways, the abiding nature of the relationship between Jesus and the disciples is about to become stronger than it's ever been. And Jesus wants to make sure that the beloved disciples here understand what that is supposed to look like. And that's why Jesus, in our passage this morning and continuing into a couple of verses that we'll see next time, in the first 10 verses of chapter 15, talks about abiding 10 times. And the point he's trying to draw out is pretty simple, and it's this. True disciples hold fast to the true word and bear true fruit. True disciples hold fast to the true word and bear true fruit. This is the the lesson that Jesus is going to wrap all this teaching of abiding around. And before we can understand what this abiding is supposed to consist of, we do really need to appreciate the imagery and the rich metaphor from the Old Testament that Jesus is evoking here with this language and how he is going to fill it full with his person and work. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our first point in your outline is the picture of abiding in verses 1 to 3. And Jesus begins with the familiar words, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This expression, I am the true vine, it is the last of the seven famous I am sayings of John. It's not the last time Jesus will use the words I am, but it's the last time Jesus will say, I am this and give us a concrete picture of who he is. Uh, we began back in John 6:35 with I am the bread of life. And then we moved to I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now finally this morning, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. What is Jesus getting at with this language? Why does he choose this? And even in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why does John place this saying as the ultimate I am saying in the book of John? Well, once again, we see this 
truth theme emerge. I am the true vine. We know that Jesus has identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. John 14, 17. The Father sends the spirit of truth to the disciples who will cause the words of truth to come back to their minds in John 14, 26. But the word true here is being used in a different way. It's not contrasting the truth with a lie, but it is better understood in the way that we would use it today when we're contrasting something that is superior to something that is inferior or something that is successful to something that was a failure. Throughout the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel that was referred to as the vine planted by God. And in almost every instance where that vine imagery was evoked, it was in the context of Israel's failure to bear fruit. Despite the fact that they had been planted by God, given every advantage of soil, sun, water, and expert tending, Israel failed to greet the gardener with lush grapes and instead was always just a shriveled stick. And so what Jesus does here is quite profound. He is announcing that he is the fulfillment of all the hope embedded in passages like Psalm 80 that we read at our opening this morning where the seed plural of Abraham had failed, the seed singular of Abraham has succeeded. There is still a garden. There is still a heavenly gardener. There is still a vine. But this vine is vital and alive and full of sustaining nutrients for bearing fruit. Jesus is now that vine, the true vine. He is all that Israel should have been and all that they had been waiting and hoped for. So then what does that leave for those that are still seeking to grow on their own? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Notice a couple things there. In the Old Testament, the picture of a vine would have caused Israel to think, okay, my primary concerns are what do I do with the gardener and what do I do with the dirt, right? I'm the vine, I'm planted, I need to grow, I need to bear fruit and be full of life. But now that Jesus, the true vine, has inserted himself into this metaphor, now that he is the vine, the relationship changes. Now the most important relationship is between the branches and the vine. If you are not a branch in Jesus, you are not a part of the Father's vineyard. And if you do claim to be a part of Jesus, well, there's a test to show that. And the test is fruitfulness. Many of us have done some late winter or early spring tending to the plants and trees in our yards. And as you know, the first thing you need to do is find dead wood and remove it. There are always branches that are dead and barren. And leaving this on the tree is trouble waiting to happen. It's a waste of the tree's energy trying to send nutrients to a branch that is dead. It's useless weight that can weigh the plant or tree down. It cannot contribute to the fruitfulness or contribute to the reproduction of the plant. And it's a danger as it is a point where disease and infection and rot can enter into the plant and threaten the entire organism. At least I'm pretty sure that's correct. We have a master gardener in the room. So if I say something stupid, you just throw a flag. In a similar way, the father is an active part in caring for the vine and is always inspecting it for dead wood. And when he finds it, he takes it away. And we'll speak more of this process shortly, but first, let's complete this image that Jesus is setting up for us. He goes on to say, in contrast to the branches that don't bear fruit, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
I did a little reading on pruning grapes this week, which was interesting, and I'll preface my comments by saying that any advice I read online doesn't appear to have any bearing on whatever the Stegers are doing in their yard because they had the most epic grapevine I've ever seen in my entire life. But here's what I read. Nikki Tilly, writing for GardeningKnowHow.com, said, When it comes to pruning grapes, the most common mistake people make is not pruning hard enough. Light pruning doesn't promote adequate fruiting, whereas heavy pruning provides the greatest quality of grapes. And I said, well, that's interesting, but, you know, that's just one of those online website things. What does a you know, real expert in the field have to say? And so I found a Mr. Strick. He is the berry crop specialist at Oregon State University. And he wrote this, home grape growers don't prune their vines enough. When gardeners prune, they should remove the majority of wood produced the previous season until about 90% is pruned off. Now, I'm sure if you pulled the grapevines, they would find that statistic excessive. Here's the point, though. Only a vineyard keeper more interested in grape leaves than grape clusters would fail to heavily prune his vineyard. And as we can see, God isn't raising a vine to be a shade plant. He wants fruit. Thus, the fruitful branches cannot breathe a sigh of relief when they see the dead wood being removed from the vine because the pruning clippers will visit every branch to ensure it is suited for fruitfulness. For the disciples, this work of pruning had already been at work in their lives for quite a while, even if they hadn't realized it. And that's what Jesus tells them in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And Jesus is using a little word play here. The word prune from verse 2 and the word clean from verse 3 is the same Greek root word. In fact, some of your translations will even have a little marginal footnote like mine does next to the word clean, and it will say pruned like a branch. Jesus is telling his disciples that the pruning has, for the moment, already taken place in their lives. How? Well, by the word he has spoken to them. Not a single word, there was this magic word that purifies them, but as Jesus used it back in John 14, 24, a summary of all of his teaching, his words to them viewed in entirety, the collective word of the incarnate word, is the most common way that pruning comes to the believer. The word of God is indeed sharper than a two-edged sword, as Hebrews 4:12 teaches. And it works first by coming to the unbelieving heart and unfolding the good news of salvation. That good news then must cut us from whatever dead stick we were trying to use as a vine. And it grafts us into Christ. And this is the work that the words of Jesus had already performed in the life of the disciples. The word does not only bring us to the point of saving faith, however, it also prunes us throughout the entire process of sanctification. This ministry of the word is indeed close to the very heart of what it means to practically abide in Jesus and is also connected to the proof of our abiding in him, as we will see later. Before we get there, I want to pause for a couple lessons. And the first is this. Jesus isn't the example vine. He is the only vine. He's not just a model. He is the only place where we can find life. Too many people want to look to Jesus as an example of what it means to live a moral and a good and a fulfilling life. And if you'll do life the Jesus way, you will enjoy your best life too. Jesus is saying, no, there are only two kinds of branches in this world. Those that are actually in me, that receive their life from me, 
and all others, no matter how much they want, may want to imitate me, they are dead branches. Those are the only two options. Secondly, we see this. The Father is invested in fruitfulness. The Father himself is invested in our fruitfulness. The Father loves the Son. He thus loves the work of the Son. He's invested in the fruitfulness of the life of his Son in us. And so he tends to us as well. Not only does he remove the dead wood, but he diligently prunes us. And he may do that in many ways. There are times he may remove from our life what was consuming an inordinate amount of our affections. And you know this well when you're pruning your trees. It's often those very parts of the tree that seem most full of life and growth that you need to cut off because they are a waste of the plant's resources and will not bear fruit. Sometimes he may frustrate our plans to cause us to grow in a different direction. We may feel like we're supposed to go that way. And God says, no, and he prunes the ends of that branch off and he pulls us over here and he wire ties us up to that part of the trellis and he says, I want you to grow that way. He may perhaps add hardships or suffering to our lives to make us fasten upon the vine more firmly. And especially around Spokane, we've experienced this. It is often those early frosts that hit in the winter that produce the sweetest crops in the fruitfulness of the tree. He clearly may discipline us where we turn to open sin. That growth which is malformed and harmful, he will often simply lop off. Primarily, however, the Father prunes with the Word. Truth shapes our soul. And this is the process that we are to submit ourselves to. And it is why over and over in the teaching of Christ and then the reverberating echo throughout the entire rest of Scripture is submit yourself to the Word of God. Let it abide in you richly. Be saturated with it because that is the tool in the hands of the gardener that he uses to prune our lives and to encourage them to grow where they ought to grow in the first place that we may be fruitful. And then thirdly, before we move on, is simply this. We must love the grape more than our branch. We must love the grape more than our branch. Many a fool has mocked the well-pruned branch and praised the useless water-sucking shoot in spring, but when the harvest arrives, true wisdom is vindicated and the fruitfulness is demonstrated. And so we may expect that God will remove from us a good deal of what we think of as our growth. But he will not, however, remove from us any capacity for true fruit. He will not remove from us that which allows us to bear the fruit that he desires us to bear this capacity he is indeed pruning for the very purpose of increasing do we love how impressive our vine looks our branch looks or do we love how abundant our fruit is so what must we commit ourselves to then if we wish to have this kind of a fruitful life well that gets us then from the picture jesus has set up to how to practically live that out and the practice of abiding our second point this morning is what we find in verses four through six the practice of abiding. And Jesus begins with a command in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. And this word abide is a favorite of John's. It's, the word is used about 118 times in the New Testament, and well over half of them are penned by John himself. And it's a word that means to remain or to stay somewhere. It's a word of both commitment and of connection to someone or to some place. And it's one of two strong commands 
regarding abiding that are in this chapter. The second is in verse 9 when Jesus says, Abide in my love. And indeed, those are the only controlling commands in this entire section of Scripture. For those who have no part in the vine, the call of Jesus would be, Come to me. But for those who have been cleaned and have been brought into a relationship with the true vine, the command remains continually, Abide in me. So then what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in him? Well, abiding language is personal language. And in our cultural circles, I think it often takes on a a mystical connotation. And I want to push back on that just a little because I think getting this aspect of this aspect wrong, this concept of abiding wrong has shipwrecked the faith of many who had an expectation of what it was supposed to look like and then didn't actually experience that. And that is precisely because even though abiding is experienced, abiding isn't experience. There's a key difference there. Abiding is experienced, but it isn't itself experience. We are nowhere that I can find instructed to ever evaluate our abiding in the vine by looking at mystical experiences or emotional states. So what is abiding associated with? How does the Bible lay out what an abiding life is meant to look like? Well, we can use John as a great example because he loves talking about abiding and he lays out a rich theology of abiding and it begins, as John teaches us, with belief in Jesus and faith in his sacrifice for us in John 5.38, in John 6.56, and in 1 John 4.15. Belief in Jesus and faith in his sacrifice, that is how we begin to abide in him. It blossoms through a love for Jesus evidenced in joyful obedience. We saw that in John 14.21. And it ripens through perseverance in the truth, 2 John 9. And then it inevitably overflows in love for one another in 1 John 4.12. So if you really want to boil it down, I think we can summarize abiding as this, that we, in faith, love and obey Jesus. To in faith love and obey Jesus is the essence of abiding, to hear his words, believe his words, trust him who said those words, to then love him and to be faithful to carry out what he has commanded us to do. That's what abiding looks like, all enabled with the empowering help of the Holy Spirit. And as we abide in Jesus, he says, if we will obey this command, he, he is abiding in us. And that's that beautiful corollary. In our faith, that we place in him, he extends his faithfulness. As we love him, he loves us. As we seek to be obedient to him, he serves and sacrifices and gives his kind care to us as well. But it isn't just Jesus who's invested in the branchiness of our existence. It's the full Trinity. Jesus is the vine, God is the vine dresser, and the Spirit is the one who empowers, and also, as John taught in 1 John 4.13, he's the one who confirms that we are, in fact, abiding in Jesus. How cool is that, that God has designed it so that the entire Trinity is personally concerned and invested and taking care in silly little branches like you and me. How foolish it would be then to think that we could accomplish anything apart from these divine blessings. And that is the point that Jesus makes next. As he goes on to say, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus doubles down on the imagery here. In the same way that a branch removed from the vine will never bear fruit, so a disciple separate, separate from the Savior will likewise be fruitless. In verse 5, it's almost funny how Jesus keeps repeating this comparison to make sure that the disciples don't get it mixed up. I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Don't get it backwards. This is how it works. We are abiding in each other, yes, but I give life, you need life. That's how this arrangement works. This paradigm, when it's correct in our lives, allows us to enjoy the mutual abiding that results, and there will be much fruit in our life. And apart from such abiding, it doesn't say we will have little fruit. It says we will have nothing. So as a lesson for us then, what is this fruit that Jesus is talking about? What does it look like? Well, I think you can describe it in a few ways. First, it is vine-sourced fruit. Vine-sourced fruit. It's really important that our fruit be the genuine article on the inside and not just a great approximation on the outside. I've seen some pretty convincing fake grape clusters that could trick your eye from a distance, but nobody wants to pop a plastic grape into their mouth and crunch down. The fruitfulness of the Christian life is a fruitfulness that works from the inside out. It starts with what we are becoming in Christ, and only then is it expressed in what we are doing for Christ. And we've memorized the list, right? The fruit singular described in nine different attributes that the Spirit is producing within us of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, of course, self-control. These are the seed, the flesh, and the sugar of our fruit. This is what makes it authentic. We can approximate the appearances of these virtues, but we cannot produce the genuine article if we are not abiding in the source. Watermelon-flavored bubblegum sells much better when there are no actual watermelons around to compare it to. Right? And artificial grape flavor might work well for a cheap soda, but I doubt that artificially grape-flavored wine would be a hot commodity. Our fruit must be vine-sourced, or it is not the fruit he's speaking of. Second, it must be vine-ripened. Vine-ripened fruit. We cannot perfect in the flesh what the vine has begun in the spirit. Sometimes we have a, thanks God, I've got it from here approach to our sanctification. A branch with emerging clusters of grapes would be very foolish to plop off the vine onto the ground and hope to reach ripeness in the grass. You may, at this time of the year, pluck a nice little tulip that's just beginning to have a blossom, and you take it inside and you put it in your little vase of water, and you can watch that blossom over the next few days. But I challenge you to go to your apple tree and snip off one of those branches and stick it in a vase of water in your house and expect apples in the fall. It doesn't work that way. And I think there's a bit of a market in the evangelical world for this kind of a Christian life. We write books on techniques and stratagems to make ministries appear successful or to make us feel like we're getting stronger and healthier in our Christian walk without it being directly connected to loving and obeying Jesus in faith. 
It's a little bit like the practice of gassing green tomatoes with ethylene gas to make them appear ripe in the store. And if you've ever had a a table with both vine-ripened tomatoes from your garden and ethylene-gassed tomatoes from the store side by side, you know how disappointing that experience is. Don't gas your sanctification. Let it ripen on and in the vine. And third, this fruit is consumed perennially. This is a fruit that is meant to be continually produced and continually consumed. It does not stay on the vine. Our fruit is to be expressed and experienced in a life of godly activity. Paul gives us the broad strokes in Ephesians 5.9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And in Colossians 1.9-10 it speaks similarly when he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all aspects. What does that look like? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And maybe you're thinking, that is great and that's inspiring and I can't wait to do that. But see, right now, when I'm looking around, the vineyard looks all deserty where I'm at. It's just a barren wasteland where I'm at right now. And so I will get right back to that fruit bearing the instant the rainy season returns. Well, the good news for us this morning is that it turns out the vine is unaffected by the surrounding landscape. When we abide in him, we can and must bear fruit in all seasons, even as Jeremiah challenged us even all the way back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, 7 to 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. And so just to the way in the Old Testament, the picture was of a tree near a stream of water so that even if the rest of the land experienced drought, it had roots down in an unending source of life. So when we are in the vine, we can hope to bear fruit no matter what our circumstances are. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, that sounds good, but you know, I've about finished my turn, been pumping out fruit for years. I think it's time to turn it over to them young whippersnappers and let them take over. I have a psalm for you. Psalm 92, 12 to 14, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. I'll let you decide if that applies to you or not. They shall be full of sap and very green. Apart from the vine, we can do nothing. When we abide in the vine, in the vine in us, it's always grape season. It's always grape season. I've seen quadriplegic former athletes with clusters of joy in the midst of tremendous challenges. I've known an 83-year-old man who took his grapes to a distant continent to begin sharing his fruit there. I've seen mothers who managed to share the sweetness of patience and kindness with children too absorbed in their foolishness and sin to appreciate it, yet... I've watched men become an oasis in their workplace where the weary and distressed can come to feast on wisdom and goodness. This is the life that Christians are to embody. But I've also seen those who, from the right distance, appeared to be so healthy and fruitful, but then fell away suddenly. 
And Jesus warns us of that as well. He goes on in verse 6 to say this, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and dries up, and they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That's one of those sentences that hits harder when you try diagramming it. Boom, 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 boom. Returning to the image of the Father tending the vine that Jesus opened with, we see here a stern warning. Fruitlessness is the result of having no relationship to the vine. And that which is unattached to the vine in a vital way is soon separated from the vine entirely and destroyed. It's a most important task for the vineyard keeper. Dead branches are soon infections and disease and more death, destroying the fruitful parts of the vine. And yes, it is sad and it's sometimes frustrating and indeed at times just flat out bewildering to hear reports of this pastor abandoning the faith or of that author coming out with their deconversion story or this conference speaker exposed to be a hypocrite and a phony and, and on and on and on. And what happens at that kind of national scale also happens in our personal circles. There's that friend you have in Sunday school who then turns their back on Jesus in high school or in college or is that family member that then announces to the family, I can't claim to be a Christian anymore because of science or this political value or this experience in life I've had. And yes, it's true, only God can see the heart. We are not the ones called to judge a person. It's also true that there are those who seem for a season to turn away from Christ, but then repent and return. But how are we to understand those who seem to be so near the vine, seem so healthy, seem so fruitful, and then take off without turning back? Well, John tells us how to make sense of this in 1 John 2.19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And that word remained that John uses there is the exact same Greek word translated abide in our passage If they had been sincere, they would have been abiding with us as we abide in the vine. And so no matter how convincing the fruit seemed on the outside, if they were taken away from the vine, it is because they were never in the vine to begin with. The vine has not failed when those who acted like one of us leave. They were merely draped over the vine and then eventually revealed to be the counterfeits that they were. And this is serious business. It's one of the reasons Christ taught us the process of church discipline in Matthew 18. The process by which the fruitless and unrepentant are warned and exhorted in escalating ways to abide in the vine, to love Jesus and obey him. And if they will not, then the church eventually is called to withdraw fellowship to act as though that person were not a part of the vine at all, to turn them over to the Father for either a severe pruning or to be removed from the vine entirely as dead wood. Don't play around with the source of life. Hebrews 6, in fact, tells us that trying to live a parasitic existence of experiencing the life of the vine around you but never abiding in the vine yourself can inoculate you against that very life you seem attracted to. And eventually the stem of your soul can scab over, and as the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. 
And that picture of gathering the dead branches and burning them is a picture throughout the Bible of eternal judgment. On this night of all nights, Jesus isn't going to mince words when it comes to matters of life and death. And neither should we. And that's why, as abrupt as it is, our first lesson here is this, abide or burn. Those are the only two options. Abide or burn. The Father cannot love the vine. He cannot love His Son. He cannot love the work of His Son and let that vine become infested and choked out with dead branches that do not have any life in the vine. The Son cannot present the sweet fruit of righteousness to the world through the church if half the clusters are plastic. The Spirit cannot bring a harvest to fruition if the vine is not well pruned and tended. And so we must not think God harsh when He abruptly cuts off and tosses aside that which threatens the very life of His dear vine. This is a mercy. But let us beware lest we be that very threat and so find ourselves on the sharp end of His just shears. What a horrible fate it would be indeed to end up like those spoken of our Savior, spoken of by our Savior in Matthew seven, nineteen to twenty three, when he said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And notice the fake article he's going to identify then is showing up with a wheelbarrow full of fake fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When we wheel up to God and say, look at all my fruit, aren't you impressed? Jesus will say, problem is, that is your fruit. It's not mine. It's not the fruit I bore in you as you were abiding in me. And no, I am in fact not impressed. It is those who truly know Jesus and are known by him, those who do the will of the Father that Jesus is after. This life of obedience and relationship is the very proof of abiding that Jesus points us to in our final point this morning. Verses 7 to 8, the proof of abiding. Jesus goes on to say this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And here we see Jesus, the master teacher, taking all this new teaching and folding it back into the lessons he's already given them. For the true disciples, the ones who in faith love and obey him, the ones who likewise treasure his words, they will have unfettered access to all that is needed to be fruitful. Filled with the life, filled with the words of Jesus, they will ask for that which is consistent with the vine they abide in, and the Father, the vineyard keeper, will certainly grant their request. How could he not when his very glory is connected to our fruitfulness? Do you see that in verse 8? My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And again, Jesus is extending the lessons he made earlier. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that my, the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is how the glory ladder works. 
The Father is glorified by the obedience of the Son. The obedience of the Son secures his bride, the church. The church is then made fruitful as it abides in the vine. And our fruit is then a demonstration of the power of the Son's obedience, which glorifies the Father. And by doing that, it simultaneously is a demonstration that we are a part of this grand display of love, obedience, and glory in the Trinity. We prove that we are His true disciples. And it is more than just a forensic proof. Like fruit itself, it is a blossoming and ripening reality because that word prove there in your Bibles is translating the Greek word for to become. It is not our good works that make us disciples of Jesus Christ. That is not what he's teaching. That has to do with whether or not you're connected to the vine. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ has to do with whether or not we by faith are part of his complete work. But in our abiding and in our fruitfulness, we are not only proving that we are disciples by name, but we are in fact becoming disciples in practice more and more so that we who have been grafted in and made alive can bear fruit and not just a little bit, but much fruit. What a grand privilege to be caught up in such glory, to know that I am in Christ and he is in me, that the father tends to me in love, that the spirit works in me and will until my fruitfulness is perfected. And surely this is a unity of purpose to capture our hearts and our minds and our strength. Indeed, I want to close by looking at some words of Jesus, and we will return to this passage in about a month. This theme that Jesus has begun to unfold for us of abiding in him, and as we'll see next time in John, abiding in his love, it is meant to have a very specific effect on us. And consider these words that Jesus speaks only hours before his tortuous journey to the cross and unspeakable suffering for sin, he can still say to his disciples with complete sincerity in John 15, 11, these things about abiding in me and abiding in my love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. We don't understand abiding if it's burdensome. We must be a most joyful people. Indeed, we must be the most joyful people. Those who have come to know the life of the vine and the fruit it produces, regardless of our circumstances. And then perhaps we could all say with sincerity, along with the hymn writer, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Let's pray. Father, we know that in Christ we are indeed more than conquerors, that there is nothing in this world that can stop the harvest that your Son has undertaken. And what a blessing that branches that deserve nothing more than the brush heap of your wrath would be grafted into the vital life of your son and to be allowed to bear the fruit that through his spirit according to his word is being produced in us to your glory 
We pray, Lord, that you would make us a, a joyful and a fruitful people, that we would provoke this city to jealousy, that they would see here the life they cannot find elsewhere. And we pray, Lord, that you might be pleased through the ministry that you accomplish in our lives to draw many more to yourself, that there would be many more branches grafted in all over this valley. The world seems dark, and you told us it would be, but you have conquered the world. And so we are a hopeful people. May we also be an obedient people. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.